Welcome to the Life Changing Principles Podcast, where we take a new principle every week and explore how it changes our lives. I'm Leanne Hunt, ready to jump into today's principle. Today we're talking about compassion-focused therapy and how some of the skills in that therapy can be translated over into coaching skills that we can use for ourselves and for our family members. Now, you might be thinking, um, Leanne, you're not a therapist. And you'd be right. I am not a licensed therapist. And at the same time, I hang out with a lot of therapists. I do a lot of therapist training. For example, I was recently at a training that was live with Paul Gilbert, who is the originator of Compassion Focus Therapy that we're talking about today. And I spent two days with him learning all about what he does with his clients and the whole theory and research behind his work in Compassion Focused Therapy. And while I was there, I was surrounded by therapists. It really was a counseling, um, continuing education forum. And I was there because they also invited others who might be interested from the community or from my perspective, from the coaching profession. Just like a therapist might have really good listening skills, a parent who has really good listening skills is probably using the same skills. So these skills are transferable. So we're not doing therapy here, but we are going to use some therapeutic skills in order to call up a compassionate self as we talk about this concept for today. So Paul Gilbert is a UK therapist and he was trained in cognitive behavior therapy. And when he first started working with clients, he taught them to reframe their thoughts, which is a really good idea. There's a lot of good things about CBT. But he noticed that when his clients would reframe their thoughts, often those thoughts still had a really negative tone to them or some additional negative comments. For example, he worked with one woman who was severely depressed, had been institutionalized off and on, had had some suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts. And she had, they were working on this recurring thought that her husband wishes that he had never married her, didn't love her and wanted to leave her. And when you talked with the husband, that wasn't true. He was trying to support her, trying to understand her difficulties and, and did love her and wanted to stay. And so as they worked with reframing that thought, he really got curious and dove deep down into how she was reframing that thought. So they had looked for evidence, which is one of the things you do in CBT for whether or not her husband loved her, whether or not he was going to leave her, all those other kinds of things. And so they had worked to reframe the thought my husband loves me, my kids love me, they support me and want the best for me. And he said, okay, how does that happen in your brain? How do you say that to yourself in your brain? She said, well, I'll narrate for you. My husband loves me, my kids love me, they want what's best for me, so what's up? You're still depressed, you've got all this love and support and you still can't get it figured out, you're such a loser. And he was like, whoa, something's going on here that we haven't figured out. And that was the birth of compassion-focused therapy. So in order to understand what's going on with the skills that we're going to do, I want to introduce you into his world and the way he teaches us about our brains and how they work. First of all, he calls our brains a tricky brain. He talks about how our brains have evolved to the point they are through evolution. And even if you believe in intelligent design of some sort, um, our brains still are the way they are, whether they were designed that way by evolution or by a God. So they're here. And there's nothing we can do about the way our brains operate. 
So for example, there's research on the default brain network, which is what happens to your brain when you try to do nothing. So they did some brain scans and they instructed people to just sit and do nothing. And you would think then, okay, the brain's going to hibernate, right? You're doing nothing, but we know it doesn't happen that way. The brain is very active when you just sit and try to do nothing. And what they found is that the regions that light up when you're quote doing nothing, which is just your default mode are the same regions that light up when you ask someone to remember an event or imagine a future event. So when we're doing nothing, we're constantly imagining future events and remembering past events, which is why we get into ruminating and going down all these rabbit holes. He likes to call this our tricky brain and say, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not our fault that our brains are this way, which helps us to kind of quit blaming ourselves and thinking that something's so wrong with ourselves. It's just normal. But then he also adds, but it is your brain. It's not your fault, but it is your brain. So we got to take responsibility for it and work with it the way it actually is. He also talks about how we can't help the way we were raised. It wasn't our choice. It wasn't our fault the way we were raised. He gives the example of what if I were kidnapped as a baby and taken to another place to live in a violent drug gang, and that's where I was raised. I would be a very different person, right? He wouldn't have become a therapist, likely. You can imagine that he might be um, in jail, that he might have an early death, that he might have done some violent things. And I really like this example because it is obvious. Oh, wait a second. If I had been raised in an entirely, very vastly different environment, you can see that there would be different things about me. I feel like there would still be some part of me that's me, but I would be a different version of me. And so we didn't get to control the version of us that was raised up the way we are. And that also contributes to the things that are happening with our tricky brains. So because our brains are tricky like this and they produce thoughts and emotions without our consent, a lot of our negative self-talk is not our fault. It's just sentences in our brains. It's just what our brains do. And so when we want to take responsibility for that, Gilbert suggests practices, a series of practices that help us to get to know our tricky brain and also to relate to ourselves with compassion because he's found that calling up a compassionate self and relating to ourselves and our brains with compassion is the solution. It changed this woman's self-talk from that negative, harsh thing, even when she was saying to herself that her family loved her and to be able to saying, wow, this is hard. What does this compassionate part of me have to say? So let's take a look at some of the practices that Gilbert introduces. I know you won't get the full flavor of all these practices because we're not going to take the many, many minutes it would take to go through each one at the pace we would need to, to really engage with it. But here I want to introduce you to them so you know that they exist so that you can find them on the internet. You can go to his books. You can get a compassion focused therapist if you wanted to, but at least now you've been made aware of them that you know that they're a thing. So the very first exercise that he asks us to do is called recognizing the unsettled mind. And it goes like this. You just sit there comfortably, relax, um, sit up straight so you're not going to get too sleepy and fall asleep during this and feel yourself in the present moment. Feel your bum on the chair, feel your feet on the floor. Maybe you'll notice some sounds or some smells around. And really the practice is simple. Just be present and just sit there and do nothing. On your mark, get set, go. 
Okay, so then he lets you sit there for a little while and do nothing. And of course, in no time at all, you end up thinking about things. You're off on your own world thinking about stuff and you're like, oh wait, I'm thinking again. Okay, I'm gonna do nothing. And then pretty soon you're thinking again. And the whole point is that there is some kind of a strong habit that's constantly active in our minds to automatically pull us away from the present moment into thinking about stuff. This is the unsettled mind. He's just trying to show you, even if you sit for two minutes and try to think and do nothing, I'm sorry, not think, but do nothing. You can't, you just can't do nothing. It doesn't work. And I love how he starts off with such a simple exercise to say, all right, (laughs) this ain't happening. Next, working with attention. This is his practice for working with attention. What you want to do is again, get kind of comfortable, sit up straight, but also relaxed and then pay attention to your right foot. Just the sensations in your toes, the sensation in your heels, pay attention to your whole foot and just hold your attention there for about 10 seconds. Then he waits 10 seconds and he says, all right, switch your attention over to your left foot. Is it wearing something? Is it bare? Feel the sensations on your toes, on your heels, on your whole foot, and just hold your attention there and really feel your left foot. Then he says, move to your right hand. Feel your right hand. Is it touching anything? Is it tense? Is it loose? Can you notice your fingers? Can you notice your thumb? 10 seconds there. And then move to the left hand. And the left hand, feel your sensations. Really pay attention to how your left hand feels. Is it holding anything? Is it touching anything? Is it warm or cold? The sensations on your skin, your fingers, your thumb. And now move your attention to your lips and the sensations around your mouth. Does it feel cool when you're breathing in? Can you taste anything? Just what does it feel like around your lips and your mouth? So what's interesting is that for most people, as you're focusing on one part or another, it's like a spotlight has been shown in on that part of the body and all of the rest of the body kind of disappears. You're not noticing it. It's just gone away. And that's why he compares it to a spotlight. And you can deliberately move that spotlight around. Your ability to move your attention is a little tiny superpower. And then he says, all right, notice what happens in your body. So for example, if you call up a memory now, we've switched from just physical sensations to a memory. Call up a memory when you were laughing, laughing with friends, laughing at a movie, whatever it was. Think of a time when you were laughing and really just bring it back to your mind and embody that moment. If you spend a minute trying to be in that moment of when you were laughing, even though it's not happening right now, you end up smiling, you end up feeling lighter, your body follows where your attention goes. If you bring yourself to a moment of difficulty or hurt or sadness or sorrow, your body will follow where that attention goes and you won't feel like laughing anymore. And I think that's a really powerful thing to understand is that what our attention focuses on within our own system, within our own memories, within our own brains, powerfully influences our feelings and our sensations that are happening right now in our bodies. 
All right, let's go to the third experiment. I'm really excited about these experiments because they're so teeny tiny and yet each one gives us a really specific purpose for doing it. So the third experiment is actually a practice that he begins to invite you to have, which is called soothing breathing rhythm. And there are a lot of ways to be mindful. There are a lot of ways to meditate. For him, he's asking us to find a breathing rhythm that's maybe a little bit slower than we normally do, a little bit more intentional, but that's relaxed and regular. It's not about super deep breathing. It's not about super, super slow breathing. It's about a rhythm of you know, three or four seconds in, kind of pausing at the top, three or four seconds out, kind of pausing at the bottom, and then just getting into a rhythm. And if that kind of freaks you out at the beginning, he suggests breathing a little faster and getting a nice rhythm going of a faster breathing and then slowing that rhythm down into a slower breathing until you begin to feel kind of still inside. That's the whole purpose for this exercise is to begin to feel a little more grounded and a little more still. Now he's got a bunch of different exercises after this that help you feel more grounded. But for this podcast, we're just talking about a few of the signature ones um, that I liked to pull out. All right, the next one is called creating a safe place. And we need to back up for just a minute to figure out why we would want to create a safe place and what its purpose is. In Paul Gilbert's world, he talks about the three different systems that occupy our brain and body all the time. Number one is the drive system, going after what we want, goal-oriented stuff, getting up in the morning, getting our breakfast, getting to work, all the things where you're go, 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 do, do, do. And in the Western world, the drive system tends to be overused. We go, 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 and do, do, do way too much. The next one is the threat system. That happens when something scares us, when fear arises, when we get startled. The startle response is the threat system. When our boss walks by the door and we kind of have this little internal freak out moment, like, ah, I gotta get this thing done because I, I am just stressed out about this. Anytime we feel stress, anytime we get triggered in a way that startles us or scares us, that is the threat system. It's automatic. There's nothing we can do about it. It just happens. And we can make it worse by ruminating on it, or we can just let it go away. But our threat systems also tend to be overused in this anxious modern world. The third system is the soothing system. The soothing system is what helps us to feel calm, chill, okay in our own skin, relaxed, safe, that's the soothing system. And this tends to be underused in the Western world. And all of these practices are really a way of tapping into the soothing system and turning it on a little more often. Because when these three can work together in a more balanced way, then it works well. We don't want to have any of them go offline. You don't want their drive system offline. Or you're not going to do much in your life. You don't want your threat system to go offline or you're not going to be alerted to, to risks in the environment that you need to take care of. You want your soothing system to be able to balance between all of these. What's interesting is that the soothing system is actually also an automatic system. It's the other half of the threat system. Your threat system automatically raises you up and alerts you and arouses you and gets you ready for stuff. Your soothing system, when it gets triggered, 
automatically sends a cascade of hormones that calm you down, that help you feel safe, and that relax you. And so each of these little practices is like a trigger. It's like pushing the first domino of a whole series of dominoes that will instigate your soothing system. This next exercise is called creating a safe place, and it triggers the soothing system. What we do is imagine a place where we feel safe and calm. It can be a place outside or inside. He has a whole series of questions about what it's like when you imagine yourself feeling safe in a place. Is What time of day is it? What color is it around you? Are there sounds around you? Are there smells around you? Is there something that you can feel? Can you feel your feet on what kind of surface? And so he goes through all of the senses because it brings us to the present moment and that's also a calming thing. And then he has you imagine your safe place welcoming you and enjoying you being there and just reveling in that moment of feeling like you belong somewhere. Feeling like you belong is a soothing trigger. So your breath is the first soothing trigger in this exercise. Imagining that you belong is another soothing um, trigger in this exercise. And feeling safe is a trigger in this exercise. So all of these things are layers of triggers that begin to soothe your brain and your body. I've done exercises before where you create a safe place in your mind. The thing I really like about his is that he has you imagine that your safe place is actively welcoming you, that it wants you to be there. You belong there. Paul Gilbert has lots of other exercises and practices that you can use to call up a compassionate self, to work with your angry self, your self-critical self, your anxious self, and to show compassion to all of those parts of you. And we don't have time to go into all of them, but I did want to give you this representative sample of some of the exercises that he uses to call up a compassionate self and to understand our tricky brain. As we begin learning the skills of coaching ourselves and coaching other people, it can be a little bit vulnerable and tricky and even scary to peek into our inner lives and to understand what's going on in there. And for me, there's nothing like having a little self-compassion along for the ride. Thanks for being here and taking a little time out of your busy life for personal development. I applaud you for that. We take change one step at a time. You're already on your way. You're already enough. You've got this. Have a great week and we'll see you for the next principle.